Welcome back to Raised by Wolves, the podcast. I'm your host, Holly Fry, and I am reeling from the happenings on the new episode of the show. So here are the five things I can't stop thinking about this week. First off, Paul is way more emotionally mature than I am, that is for sure. I cannot imagine being so expansive as to forgive the people who killed my parents because I would understand their place in a larger conflict. And he's doing this at like the ripe old age of like 12, 13. How soon? I have nothing to do with her. I hate her, actually. Do you hate me? Because coming here to this planet and pretending to be your parents, that was my idea. I know why you did it. I know why she did it. But that's not why I hate her. I hate her because she doesn't, she doesn't believe in soul. And therefore she's an atheist. And you can't forgive an atheist. Maybe he is some kind of chosen one because that is some advanced behavior. Speaking of Paul, I am sure we are all wondering if he is going to morph into another snake baby. Next up is Vril. Vril, Vril, Vril. First off, what was that that passed between her and Decima when Vril said that she wished she had necromancer eyes? As if that didn't evidence enough family dysfunction, Decima actually does the thing that Marcus wants her to do and attempts to destroy Vril. And that whole faceless situation and the run off the cliff, le yikes. Today in Oops News, <laughs> Marcus should probably not have tussled with Mother. Holly is safe. I wish I could say the same for Paul. But so will heal him soon enough. What have you done to him? I didn't do this. The trust did. Well, that shouldn't come as a surprise. It's not as if using children as weapons is anything new for the atheists. Once Campion gives her that assist by hucking that rocket, Marcus, and she takes away the thing that was giving him all that charisma and strength, that being her eyes. All right. But that also means that Mother can now self-weaponize at will, which is its own basket of bees. Uh, it seems, though, at least in the immediate sense that she is using her regained powers for good. She is, after all, programmed to take care of children, and Paul definitely needs help, and she seems like she's being cool about it. We'll see. Mother and the Trust. Uh, well... My sibling rivalry thoughts played out way more dramatically and way earlier in the season than I would have expected. I kind of thought that was going to be like the big bad conflict at the end. Nope. Happening right now. The loss of three children was preferable to the mass casualties we would have endured if I had responded with a traditional attack. I know you can see the logic in this decision. No. I have to protect my children. What you did was wrong. Hand over your eyes, mother. Hand them over, and you may recommence normal life here with your family. You used my children as pawns. Yes. There was an opportunity. They were already in contact with the terrorists. 
When you should have alerted me, I can discipline my own children. Had the plan been successful. But it wasn't! Uh, I wonder if the atheist community will dissolve into chaos without its AI leader and how things are going to go with Mother at the helm. Of course, since she can weaponize now, they may just all stay in line. Uh, It seems like it could be a recipe for disaster, though, so we'll see what happens. She is, we should note, just picking up one new source of power after another in this episode. Maybe good, maybe bad, we'll see. And then... Father's Craft Project is alive! What is it? Is it good or evil? We don't know. Why did Father seem to short-circuit when looking upon it? We also don't know. Listen, I know I short-circuit with delight when looking at the costumes on this show, so that is my segue because I am ridiculously thrilled to welcome costume designer Kate Karen for a little chat. Okay, first of all, I need you to tell me everything about Mother and Father's little onesie unitard outfits. One, are they welded instead of stitched? They are, yeah, welded. They're glued together. And we, we yeah, they, they are, those suits are an absolute story. And from episodes one and two in season one to where we are now, you'll see the fit is is. It's vastly improved, vastly improved towards the end of, towards the middle of season one as well. It's just, it's just such a kind of fine science and you have to fine tune it with each little change. There's improvement. I mean, they're incredible. They're actually incredible. We kind of stumbled across an absolutely fabulous girl who had, who, who made, who comes in and makes them for us. I mean, she, she literally makes those suits for months and months and months. And she's incredible. How sturdy are they? I imagine you would have to have multiples on hand in case because they're so pivotal to the look of the show. Yeah, we do. I mean, like, for for instance, at the, uh, season two, I, um, when David Zucker said to me, do you want to come back? I said to him, I want to come back as long as the latex maker can start three months before me, which is kind of what happened. And then we have a very smelly room at the workshop, <laughs> which is the latex room, which is... You walk, you walk past it. If the doors open, your hair goes into a perm because there's deeply suspect <laughs> smells coming out there. We have dozens and dozens and dozens of them, and we make them in different gauges as well. So, but I mean, any one time we've we've usually, if we're ahead of the game, which we certainly were on season two, we've usually got anything between twenty to twenty-five suits for each of mother and father plus their stunt doubles plus their um their picture doubles and stuff so i mean they let we make them i mean i think we make four suits a week wow but can i tell you there's not many people that can wear those suits that the, the, the these two guys have got pretty phenomenal bodies and they're very unforgiving i certainly would never want to wear one because there is nowhere to hide in those suits in between takes if if they need to we take with they take stuff off and we do, they each has another, they now all both have a base layer underneath that we've made um, out of neoprene. So in the winter, because those suits in the summer are absolutely like, you're literally being boiled alive in them. And in the winter, it's like running around bare naked because there's no way to retain the heat. 
So we, this season we made them uh, neoprene wetsuits that went underneath them as well, which just gave them, they were very fine, I think it was two mil wetsuits that we made, um, which really, really helped them as well, just to give them, because it's impossible to ask them to do everything that they've got to do, all the action, all the lines, when you can't think straight because you're either being boiled alive or you're frozen. So it's a hard job for them. What is it like just getting in and out of them? Because latex is not always easy to just pull on. Listen, there's nothing you can tell me about latex. <laughs> it's, like, it's literally a science. It's a science to make it. It's a science to get it on and off. Nobody puts them on themselves. That's always rule 101. Whenever anybody comes, if we get a new stunt or anything like that, it's literally, you know, we fit them. They are kind of drilled at every fitting. Do not try to do this yourself because there's a certain way to, to pull them on and hoy them up over their shoulders. I mean, they have to sit into them as we hoy them up either side. It only takes one person to put it on but that person needs to know exactly what they're doing and the person putting it on needs to, to play along. And, I mean, to start off with, I think Amanda, it used to take about 10 minutes to get her into a suit and now she hoys it on and off in about 35 seconds flat. So we have been talking a lot about these suits because they are, like I said, so iconic in the, the visual language of this entire show. But there's a whole lot of other outfits that go on. And when you as a designer start a project like this where you are making that visual language, where do you start? What are your first steps when you have read the brief of the script and you're like, okay, now I have to make this something real? Look, I would like to tell you that I was really, really, really clever and that I, you know, had a big art degree. I have none of those things. I literally, when I read the scripts, I'm very visual and I feel, I have a get very much get the look in my head. I cannot draw for toffee, literally. I draw stick men and I jot down ideas and then I work with an illustrator who's phenomenal, who works digitally and in layers. So we sit together and then we present. They're very generous on that job and they're very, they allow you to be brave and they allow you to have a first pass at it. And I also am very instinctive and it's rare that you don't end up where you started. And sometimes you present something and then there's a few iterations of it, but nine times out of 10, you come back to where you start. And I'm a great believer in what you what you write, draw down first to your gut is, is where you end up. And most times, definitely on that show is where you end up. Uh, last season on the podcast, we talked to uh, a historian, David Walsh, about the real world cult of Mithras. Did you reference any imagery from that historical religion for any of your work on costumes? To be honest, Ridley draws those designs. He, he, well, he does what I used to call three squiggles and a dot, and then he hurls it across the table at you and you're asked to decipher it. <laughs> so he obviously, yeah, you're like that. I definitely know it's two squiggles and a dot. Let me see what I can come up with. So he has a very clear vision. And obviously I didn't design episodes one and two of season one. So Janty Yates, his costume designer, did that. And they worked very tightly together. And then when they left, we after season one, we went down for six weeks, which was basically so that we could all start to breathe again and kind of stand back far enough to prep for the rest of the episodes that were coming in. And there were copious notes from Ridley about changes that he wanted to make. Having edited, there was some fine tuning that he wanted to do. So there's slight design changes. I mean, 
you'd have to be a true disciple to see them, but there are some slight design changes between uh, the first block and then the remaining blocks of season one, and we ran with those. I think when I'm looking for inspiration for everything, yes, obviously you go, I would definitely refer to the Mithriac, definitely look back to see what I can find. You're always trying to hone in and look for little kind of nubs of interest and and detail that you can put on something, definitely. What were some of the other visual inspirations that you used for the look of this show? Well, look, for the the season two, we have... um, Season one, those kids were mostly the one. We didn't have loads and loads and loads of extras in season one. So season two, they were coming in hard and fast. It was an atheist. Uh, the atheist um, people had landed and we wanted to... I want, they, they, they were scripted as wearing boiler suits. And I said to Aaron, please don't make me make another boiler suit. I want to kill myself. <laughs> and at least if there's a trouser and a jacket and some kind of top, then we've got a bit of play within that for a layer. And the boiler suits are, you know, they I think they definitely set the tone and they looked great, but moving forward, I just I just wanted to add a bit of change into that. So then I I, I wanted to do something that was sturdy, some work wear. Uh, Viet Cong was kind of my base look for those things. We started drawing up and sending stuff through to Ridley. You know, at that time, we were literally at the height of the pandemic. And as you know, we shoot in South Africa. Um, South Africa used to have a massive textile industry, but it's not it's it's not there anymore. We are used to shipping in hundreds of metres of fabric. And so we were kind of up against all the parameters that the pandemic threw at us. If I'm truthful, ideally, we, we made those costumes out of denim. Ideally, I probably wouldn't have gone there as a first base. Um, and actually, in retrospect, I think it worked. It looked really amazing. There were some questions from Ridley about the fact that there were, it was denim because I think he was worried that it would come across too and too contemporary. But we over-dyed everything. So we over-dyed in the two tones that we used for the atheists in a kind of burn orange and that bile tone which kind of gave that denim a whole new look. And it was just important to find a denim with enough of a grain in it that it would take some of the colour and we wouldn't lose it all to the blue. I want to ask you a million dye questions, but I'll do that later just for my own personal use. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned the colours and the over-dyeing because the colour palette is very different this season. You know, last season, most of what we saw, like you said, it was a small group. They were wearing very rough-hewn garments that looked like they were loomed there in their little pop-up habitat and now we have like a whole world of people that are wearing what look like manufactured uniform style outfits and it's a little more saturated visually in color um will you talk about how those design decisions are made what led you to the colors you went with and why it was so important to make it a little it's not quite brighter but it's deeper uh, do you know what? Again, I, I like. I would love to come back with something very clever. Um, it, it's actually. It wasn't that. I mean, it, again, when I read it, I saw them in a bit of color. I, I said to the 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 showrunners, you know, how do you feel about this? And they were like, we'll draw it up and sample it, which is what we did. I wanted to use that burnt orange. If if you look through season one, any pops of color that come through on season one, it's what we call the Ridley orange. So it's a kind of signature colour that he's used in season one. So I wanted to reference that. 
And then the wily yellowy green is literally my favorite color in the whole world. And I find I, I, I have used it before. It works really well. It, it can work for period. It just, what it does is it just makes things slightly off kilter. And I felt with the, with the burnt orange, they were a really good marriage because neither one of them, they, they both felt like they'd come from somewhere else and they'd had a journey. And it was the weirdest thing because the lovely Mark, who was our lead DOP, when he came in to look at the costumes, he, I said to him, you know, we've just done these samples, we're about to run, can we take some photographs of them? Can we take them up to set? And he was amazing. We did a little kind of spin-off photo shoot with a stand in, in all the colours so that we could send them off and have them approved. They, I mean, again, they were just so on board. They loved the idea of it. It wasn't overly saturated, but it, it's kind of got quite an old-fashioned um, filmic feel to it, those colours. It feels like an old Hollywood movie, those colours, and that's what I wanted to do. And actually, when you know, with working with the art department and set deck, the colours that they were using, we were all very much led by each other because I wanted it to look like... Even though that spaceship had landed, it still needed to look like there was some sort of connection and comfort to that new world with a slight crossover with where what they came with and then what they found there. And, and I think we, we managed to achieve that. There is an incredible range of looks in this show. I mean, obviously, we've talked about the androids. We've talked about this very military style look. There is, you know, in season one, we had religious robes. There are some hearkenings back to that. How do you, I mean, you may just say, like, I just get it because I'm a genius. But um, how do you make all of that look like it's part of the same world even though it it spans such different style lines you know i literally when you i'm i I, like i I mean it sounds like a cop-out but you read the scripts and the first thing it's normally the first thing it jumps to you that comes you know there's some new characters that are coming through so there's new there will be some you'll see some new looks there's we kind of um expanded on the atheist look for the some of the soldiers so there's new layers and stuff coming through from them there's the kids um there's we did some androids um atheist androids which were fun to do again you'll see the color choices there there's a bit of a marriage through there and each each i don't know i mean i'm not sure if i'm answering your question very well i mean it literally feels very natural to me and it's absolutely that I'm not a genius it's probably completely the opposite that I'm a dunce and I run with the first thing I run with but I'm good at selling (laughs) Uh, I don't think you're dunce because it all looks right and if you were not uh, secretly a genius you may not think so but I think it wouldn't all feel cohesive the way that it does when it actually comes together well it's really important for me at the end of the day sometimes when you walk on set and, and you see it all together your heart sings because you feel like geez we've made a painting and you know I do work very hard with the set deck and the props people and and the production designer because particularly on that job you know well on every job it's so important to feel like you're part of their we're all part of one family and we're all trying to paint a picture and if somebody's off doing you know a piece of modern art when we're trying to do a kind of old-fashioned masterpiece it doesn't work we all need to be singing the same song and I, and I feel like yeah we're, it's it's a real co- collaborative job this and 
that it, that's what makes it such I mean I love that job I absolutely love that job it's a gift of a job and great fun to do because they do let you run I love it uh, because this is I mean the, the pandemic started right after season one premiered we haven't had like fan conventions happening are you hoping to see fans do costumes from the show well I, I mean I think that's the whole world that I was kind of introduced to from season one. I mean, I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of Comic-Con or any of those things. And and actually, I mean, we I get sent stuff all the time to my website, fan art and stuff. I mean, they're incredible. And it's also incredible what people come up with. It, it also, when you're designing, I can't lie, part of what I have to do is also make things that are, you know, there'll be certain elements that are not attainable, but it's it's more amusing if there's something, elements that you can put in it that make it reachable because the type of people that watch that kind of show are the type of people that are going to go out and get dressed up like that. It's fantastic. Absolutely amazing. To me, that's like just the greatest moment of joy when you see someone at a con that's pulled off a really good replication of something that's hard to do. It's magic. That's part of like why this whole thing works like it's exciting well i think it just makes it it's a whole kind of marketing side that we didn't ever used to have to deal with but i think it's kind of just adds another element of interest into what we do kate i would talk to you all day long if you let me oh god your poor ears is all i'm (laughs) (laughs) no my delighted ears (laughs) um thank you so much for spending this time with me and just for making things that are beautiful to look at and add to this amazing storytelling oh well you're so welcome i hope you i I hope you enjoy what's coming through in season two and that there's going to be lots more exciting things that we haven't even touched on there's lots of new looks coming through still to enjoy So uh, I am in love with Kate, and I imagine you are too. She is as charming as they come. My deepest, deepest thanks once again to her for joining me. Next week, we have another stellar guest lined up. That is director Alex Gabasi. so you are not going to want to miss it. We'll see you then. Raised by Wolves, the podcast is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio. It's hosted and written by me, Holly Fry. The podcast is produced and edited by Jeff Heimbuck and executive produced by Ethan Fixell, with additional assistance from James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Raised by Wolves, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max with new episodes. Episodes available to stream on Thursdays.